I'm Grace, CEO and founder of Cultural Calculator, and this is The Culture Coach, where we share the wisdom and knowledge from the trailblazers who have broken new ground through their approach to leadership, team building, and ultimately creating cultural change for the better. Created and sponsored by Cultural Calculator. Today we have Hector with us, who's one of the founders of Unplugged, who's on a mission to help people switch off, and I'm going to pass over to him to introduce himself and his business properly. Thank you very much, Grace. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm the founder of Unplugged, and we help people live happier lives by providing three-night digital detoxes at beautiful off-grid cabins. I mean, sounds amazing. Obviously, I want to go, but um, <laughs> it would be really great to hear how you even arrived with this idea and why is it so important? Yeah, for sure. So um, my background came from the tech startup world, ironically. So me and my co-founder were the first two hires for an iPad point of sale company. So if you go into a restaurant or a cafe and they're using an iPad for the till, and, you know, we did the whole high growth, international expansion, opened up in the US and Australia. And I just started to lose my joy for life and really started to kind of get burnt out. And so in 2019, at the recommendation of a friend, I went to a silent retreat in the Himalayas. And, you know, it was this beautiful Buddhist temple on top of a mountain and when it was first recommended, I laughed it off. I was like, I can't do that. What would the guys at work think? All of that. Uh, but I finally got myself out there. And the best thing about it is when you get there, they take your phone off you and you just spend three days cut off from, or 10 days even cut off from the outside world. So very cliche, but came back from that, quit my job a week later. And that was off the back of a conversation with Ben, who's my co-founder. And uh, Ben is is not the kind of guy you'd find a silent retreat anytime soon. We spoke about how there's a lot of stigma around retreats, meditation, and so much of the benefit is just getting people offline and into nature. So yeah, we just, just saw a really interesting opportunity in let's call it the digital detox space because we're super early and everyone kind of knows they've got an, uh, an issue with screens and it's burning us out, but not many people are doing anything about it. And it's a hard space to make anything work because no one makes money when you're off your phone. They make money when you're on your phone and they can advertise to you. So as a result, it's really just consultants running corporate workshops. And we'd heard about this tiny house movement in other countries. And what's interesting about that, A, it's a great business model because they're very efficient at returning capital, but also um, they bring, let's say, sex appeal to it. And if you want to really affect change, kind of like Tesla has done with the electric car, like you need to make it sexy. So we just thought the two married together really nicely. So this was end of 2019, just before the world changed. And the basic concept is we put cabins an hour from city life. People go literally padlock their phones in a box. We give them a map and a Nokia and leave them to it. Wow. Okay. There's just like so much in this I want to unpick, like rewinding even back to you taking that step for yourself personally to go off to the Himalayas and do a 10-day retreat. You mentioned there about... Um, you know, kind of like laughing it off after a recommendation. What for you was the specific switch that kind of flicked that went, no, I, there's something in this, like I want to try it out for myself. 
Yeah, so it really took me a lot to to get out there, you know, like fundamentally it was a friend of mine did it and and he told me he was like you just got to go and do this and I think that normalized it to me because right. before that I just felt so alien. Um and I think the narrative in my head was like I'm not the kind of person who goes on Buddhist retreats, you know. Like I can't do this. Uh and I used to actually kind of pre and pre and post retreat like pre retreat I I really cared so much what people think I think I was very self-conscious in many ways and that was very debilitating like my life I've always been a people pleaser and you know whether it's kind of going out drinking to you know what I'm doing at work like it was always really kind of governed by what will people think Uh, and that was a real switch uh, on the on the retreat is talking about the the Buddhist idea of attachment so you know the retreat was half meditation half Buddhist philosophy and for the first five days or so, the the Buddhist philosophy was like, yeah, you know, interesting, but not life-changing. And then we got into attachment. And that is the idea that I need this to be happy. And, you know, that was just such a, you know, a watershed moment for me because it, it just explained so much of my life. You know, I just, just had this kind of thing of like, I need to, you know, this job or to go and do an MBA or like whatever it is, just all these kind of silly external things. Um and what that retreat really taught me is you don't need any of it. And, you know, we, we all have um, the kind of ability for happiness within us. And it's actually by stripping away all the things that are making us unhappy that we reach that rather than, you know, we feel like we need to add, you know, add the car, add the job, add the higher salary. Um, but it's not about that. It's about stripping it away. And, and we all have it in there somewhere. Wow, that was so beautifully said. <laughs> and there's a Buddhist phrase, um, that I often remind myself with, which is when we give someone a diamond, we also give them the fear of losing it. Mm. And it's like, you know, based on that whole idea of attachment, like where there is attachment, there's also often a lot of fear and a lot of suffering that can come out of it. Um, But I'm really curious there with your kind of realization of actually not needing anything like you said, you came out of that retreat, you quit your job. What was that next step in going from that space to doing what you're doing now? It was all fairly kind of impromptu, like, but but that was that was the thing, like the headspace I was in then was just a very kind of empowering one. Mm. Um, and we actually, uh, so the, I, 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 what also happened at the startup at the time, so I had to fly back for a leadership meeting. At this point, we had you know seventy people across four continents, um, and we're trying to raise a Series A. And two days after I got back from the retreat, the Series A fell through. And so that night, we closed the US office, closed the Australian office, got rid of half the company. Um, and I was running marketing at the time, growth. Uh, and so we you know paused all, all marketing spend. So I had that week twiddling my thumbs. Um, and because when I came back from the retreat, I had no intention of quitting my job, no intention of, of starting anything. But then that situation came about and went for a drink with Ben. And then I think it was just that kind of, you know, from the, the learnings I'd, I'd picked up, just realized that like anything's, anything's possible. I know that sounds cliche. Um, so had a had a chat then i spent three hours on a friday night googling cabins and i was like all right i'll I'll quit on monday and let's let's give this a go amazing and that feeling like you mentioned the word empowering and feeling of anything's possible for you 
did that, was that something that arose in that time of having, I guess, gone more deeply into yourself than the day-to-day living of just getting on with life versus having been in that retreat for 10 days in silence, meditating? What do you think it was about that that sort of got you in an empowering headspace? I know you've mentioned the sort of theory of attachment, but what do you think it was that made you actually generate this energy of anything's possible? Why aren't we in that energy normally? It's it's fear, really. You know, it's the kind of fear. What will people think? It's the fear. Will I fail? All, all of these, all of these things. And I think what the retreat gave me is just headspace. You know, like we all just live in this constant state of overstimulation. You know, from the first thing we do in the morning is is often pick up our phone to the last thing at night, uh, and it's never it's never further than arms width away. And every time you pick that up, you get distracted. You know, you're in this state of of overstimulation, uh, and it's very hard to you know to really kind of properly think and let your mind wander and and kind of tackle these things. So we do just go through life, you know, especially for the last decade in this just heightened state of anxiety with frayed nerves. Um, and so what what the retreat did for me is is it, it kind of allowed my mind to settle down and destimulate. And I think from that place, like from that place, humans are not built to be, you know, stressed and in constant fear of what would happen if I do this or, or, or that. Um, and so I, I think that's very much a kind of side effect of, of modern life rather than the way we're supposed to be operating, you know? Like, it's crazy that you know, people literally fear, like, a presentation at work like it's death, you know? Like, yeah. there's a there's an amazing anecdote that I can't remember the statistic, but it's about people fearing public speaking more than dying. So at the average funeral, then most people would rather be in the coffin than at the podium giving the eulogy. And, and that's, no. the, that's the kind of state of it, right? And it, it's such a, a silly thing. Um, but we're just, we're just not wired to live in these kind of crazy societies, these cities that, that we live in today. Uh, and that shows up in so many different ways across every aspect of mental and physical health. Um, and so again, I, I think it really comes back to like stripping away what's causing us the, the unhappiness and you know, within there that we all have so much ability and potential. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just about letting that come out, I think. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? How life is kind of built around being so externally facing, you know, like learning how to navigate the outside world when actually we have an entire inner universe yeah. that we don't necessarily really learn how to navigate like it's not necessarily a normal thing to really learn and understand how to navigate that Go on. yeah for sure no I, I think that's so interesting I mean coming on to culture obviously your specialist topic um I think so, so much of culture you know we think we need to you know add a you know add some sweets or a whatever trip go-karting or whatever it is um but actually, I think, you know, leaders, for example, but but anyone in the company, really, like people's mood makes such a difference, you know? So if you are in a calm state, if you're happy, um, then that really, that really spreads. And I think the biggest thing any leader can do for culture, in my opinion, is get themselves in a good headspace, you know? And I think, you know, so, so many, and the, the culture really went wrong at um, our old startup, which we, we can talk about 
why that was. Um, but when you're in, when you are in a bad culture, it's very hard to get out of because it just really starts to compound and you know, negativity really seeps through the, the whole company. Um, and so I, I really think it starts, as you say, in, in, in each person's head. And, you know, if anyone wants to change the culture, then change yourself first and you're going to be much better place to do that. So true. Um, so like one of the ways we actually work at Cultural Calculator is on the one hand, getting a team to be more aware of what is what is the experience of the collective environment they're creating and what are the opportunities that are there for improvement. But the direction we've ended up going in is also working, not just from that perspective, but also from the perspective of, okay, we can make improvements in the environment, but if we aren't expanding our self-awareness to make the personal shifts possible that are needed to be, you know, to be about optimizing what the culture is for everyone, we would be neglecting half the picture. Like you need yeah. the two working hand in hand. Definitely. Yeah, that's it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's at the heart of everything. So given you've mentioned, you know, modern world, we're just not built for it. People would rather be in the coffin than up there <laughs> doing the eulogy. Why do you think we've got to this point in society where it kind of has accelerated in that direction. Like, as you said, we live in this state of overstimulation. Like, what is the allure? Like, how come, given there's so many kind of negative side effects in terms of the stress, anxiety, um, you know, even depression in some cases, like we're seeing now with kids growing up that have just been plugged into their phones the entire time, actually, the heightening of eating disorders, the heightening of depression and anxiety in the younger generations, like given all of that, like what's your perspective on why it feels like it's accelerating in that direction? I think we just, you know, potentially optimizing for the wrong thing or not even the wrong thing, but it's just, you know, we're not optimizing for happiness. We're, we're optimizing for what we think will make us happy. Um, and it goes right back. Uh, there's a great bit in Sapien's, which is about you know the history of humanity, and um, Harari, the the author, says the worst thing that ever happened to us was the the invention of farming, and the reason behind that is you know when we were living a hunter gatherer life, which we're still fundamentally like we haven't changed that much biologically, so we're still very much built for that life, and you know in that life you're you're roaming all day, you know you're you're on your feet exercising, you live in a kind of small tight knit community where you know everyone, and you get on well, um, and you eat a kind of varied diet, all of these things. And then, you know, we started to realize that, okay, we can cultivate these certain plants, which means we can settle down, which means, you know, we don't have the kind of, um, don't have to do so much work and, and go and hunt and gather. But then it turns out that, uh, that farming is a lot of work. And, you know, suddenly we became a slave to, to, to kind of managing the fields and farming the fields. Uh, and we started to live in bigger communities because, again, you didn't need to roam over such a big area. And those bigger communities, disease spreads easier. You suddenly get to a stage where you don't know so many people. I mean, again, you must see it when, when you're working with these kind of bigger organizations. Um, that Once you get past, I think it's 150 people, then stuff goes wrong. Um, and so we we were kind of focused on how do we make our lives easier but the result is our lives became unhappier, you know, and suffering increased. And it really hasn't stopped since, you know, like everything we're doing, 
um, I think, you know, social media phones are, are a great example. It brings so many amazing things um, to the world, obviously, and, and it's obviously here to stay. Uh, but it is kind of the next shift in humanity, you know, like it happened with, with the written word. And, you know, we, we obviously look back very positively on, on that now. And again, the written word has, has brought a lot to society. It's increased the depth of knowledge, et cetera. But when that was coming, Socrates famously uh, was completely against the written word because he thought so much would be lost if we moved away from oral culture. You know, like he thought oral culture uh, promoted virtue more and it you know, promoted our memories and it was a more kind of wholesome existence. Uh, and he was probably right. And it's the, the same thing's happening now where we're going through this amazing te technological change. And, you know, you see we're talking a few weeks after OpenAI brought out their, their new tool and, yes. you know, the, the possibilities are, are really endless um, as to where that's going. But is that a happier existence? You know, probably not. And and it's a big question. Should we be optimizing for happiness? Some people, there was a, a podcast with the CEO of Goldman Sachs and the, the point they made was what what percentage is, is the right percentage of happiness to go for? Because yeah. you don't want to go for 100% in their view because then, um, you know, then you won't work at anything. And I actually spoke to an old colleague who's, who's gone on to be very successful. And he told me that he's just starting to uncover stuff around his childhood traumas uh, with his parents. And he said, I don't actually want to cure all of my traumas because that's also what gives me my drive, you know? And so wow. it's an interesting, it's an interesting question, which is like, if you want happiness, then perhaps the best thing to do would just be to go to the Himalayas and, you know, sit in a temple meditating all day for the next 40 years. Um, so I do think there is more to life. Like we, we, we seek novelty. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's what drives all this technological change as well. It's like the next thing, the excitement of that, the, you know, we, we, we get meaning from that. So I think it's a really interesting uh, balance. And I think it, it probably comes down to the individual, but I think what we do need to, um, perhaps recognize is that these things we think are making us happy, like, you know, having more frictionless digital experiences probably aren't. I mean, it's such an interesting perspective that, because to me, that sounds like a perspective of fear, like, God forbid, if we optimize and everyone's 100% happy, no one will do anything. You know, <laughs> often when I go on retreats, actually, it's a question that gets asked to the teacher, you know, well, if I am just so content, I won't do anything. And often the response from the teacher is, well, just because you're at peace in yourself, why are you assuming that you've lost your drive for life? Like if anything, life has the potential to become more alive, more spontaneous. As you were saying, you take more risks. Like you didn't come back from 10 days of silence in the Himalayas and go, I'm going to go move there. Like that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Actually, the possibilities in your mind opened up because there was less fear in you. So yeah, to me, when I hear something like that, like, oh, if people are too happy, the whole world will stop. Actually, I kind of think if people felt more freedom in themselves, if people felt more empowered in themselves, think what could be possible. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, and 
it's you know you never you never hear people say that after the fact they're never like i'm so glad i'm I'm so annoyed that i got rid of all my trauma you know because like so it's definitely that that loss aversion i guess if you think about that person who you know is really striving to do something because of you know the traumas and the the need for recognition or whatever it is um, i guess that's like what they know and what they value and before they've gone through the process of um you know kind of reassessing that to i agree a much more positive place when it's not coming from a place of fear but a place of you know compassion and and joy um there is this kind of loss aversion of like you know i hold so much stock in you know how driven i am in my career you know it's that that's kind of i guess where people are coming from but i I agree with you that uh you know if anyone who goes through that process then they're like okay actually that was silly well yeah because i feel like it's part of human nature to feel that drive like think of um you know like maslow's hierarchy of needs like human beings actually like the way that we're differentiated from the rest of the animal kingdom is our ability to self-reflect our ability for our consciousness to continue to expand and develop it's not a stagnant fixed thing it's something that actually has limitless expansion in it we could develop it for the rest of our lives and that to me is like when I think now about even what I'm doing and my business, it's like me understanding my own past traumas and working through those has been such a fundamental foundation to give me the courage to do things and the capacity to do things that I just simply wouldn't have done otherwise so I know I know what you speak of there in terms of of course there's drive that can come from unhealthy historic patterns but I'm such a believer in the drive that can come from freedom from those patterns 100% wow I really I've got just really lost (laughs) in that (laughs) um here we are you've set up unplugged and you mentioned about your co-founder definitely not the type of person who necessarily would gravitate towards that stuff but actually part of your mission right is about making this normal and it isn't for everyone to go off like you said on a 10-day retreat in the Himalayas and what you have done has been so impressive in terms of actually making it something that is so normalized of oh, just get out of the city, have three days to yourself to switch off. But how did you kind of negotiate that tension? Like, why did you, for example, end up deciding it's a 72-hour thing? Like, what was kind of the logic around finding what felt optimal for that normalizing of actually something that has a profound intent underneath it? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, I think approaching this, one of the big, I guess, one of the big kind of drivers for us was to make something accessible, right? Because this really isn't aimed at, you know, people who are already going and spending weeks or months in, in the Himalayas. Obviously, we do get a lot of people like that who who come and, and love it as well. But it's about the people who, you know, won't, who, who kind of haven't made that, because it is, it is a big psychological leap to make. Um, and... 
it's daunting and you know th- there are big barriers around it not least the 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 time and cost to fly to the himalayas um and so it, it's really about kind of bringing it to that wider audience and um the because i think there's there's a danger still now but but definitely when we started of digital detoxing kind of passing as a fad and actually we when uh, when we were coming up with the whole concept we made a list of phrases we weren't going to use and digital detox was on that list no we way like, it's, too, <laughs> it's too fatty we can't talk about that and i think that's um still the case but you know as we grow as we, we kind of get more people doing it then as you say it normalizes it and i think the reason we've kind of settled on it is because it is just a great description of of what this is and it, it's tangible for people to kind of be like okay i ju- do just maybe i could just spend you know some time off my devices and and, and there's a lot of benefits to be had from that obviously so the, the way we kind of see it now is uh, i think people underestimate how malleable the future is and it's always like like i think sometimes people look at you know, new ventures and it's like well is the world going to go in that direction um and the world was very much not going in this direction you know we're, we're only getting more addicted to our devices but you know if we succeed and if we can get to a stage where we have thousands of cabins and we have hundreds of thousands or even millions of people doing this every six to twelve months um then w- that will create some profound changes in society and just by that happening, then, you know, it, that does normalize digital detoxing, right? So I feel like, you know, we have the ability to take take uh, society in a, a different direction. And yeah, so the way we're looking at it is kind of see Unplugged as just one big social experiment. And, you know, if we can get there and if we can really drive this change, then I think it will just, just take, take us in a, a really interesting and, and happier direction as a society. Wow. So with that idea of one big social experiment and the sort of ripple effect um, of what happens if we get more and more people doing this, what's your sort of ultimate vision for that? That's a great question. Um, Well, I think the very honest answer is I don't know where this could end up, but I have a vision of where, you know, we don't want it to be, and I'm not sure if you've seen the uh, Pixar film Wall-E about the kind of so it's a uh, robot in the future, and all of the humans live on this space station, and they're all massively overweight, and they're in these levitating wheelchairs with their faces into screens, and that is the trend. You know, if you look around on the tube nowadays, everyone is just face down in their screens, and so I mean the uh, the, the the future that I see is is a little bit more like the past, you know. Like, can we go back to a place where people, you know, where, where everyone enjoys being out in nature, um, being present, and 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 there's so many things that comes from that as well. Like, we people smile less when phones are present. There's less empathy between two people, even if you just have your phone on the table. It doesn't even even need to be switched on. And so there's all these amazing things that you know. The more screens we have in society, the the less empathy, the it actually reduces your intelligence as well happening at there. So the less smiling. So, so I, I just think you know we want to move this towards a society where people prioritize spending time offline, so we can cultivate these things. You know, so we can cultivate empathy, so we can cultivate real relationships. I think it's such a. I mean, you must see this all the time at cultural calculator, but it's such an interesting debate this whole kind of remote versus um in-person work and, and hybrid etc because you just can't build empathy 
as well if you're 100 percent remote i'm a big believer in that and i know some companies do it they make it work and you know but but a lot of other companies tried it and have backpedaled um and i think you know you do just need that FaceTime, that, that there's a depth of connection that you just can't get. And there's an even deeper depth of connection if a phone isn't present, you know? So, so yeah, I really think it's about that. It's about can we move towards a world where you know, people are more compassionate, they're more empathetic, uh, and they're more present. I mean, that's the, that's the word. So just to clarify, because it kind of freaked me out what you said there. Are you saying even when a phone is just here, like let's say we had a phone here, we would feel less connected by the fact that the phone is there? Yeah, we would feel less connected and we'd both do worse on an IQ test. And we'd smile less. So, so. What is yeah. going on? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so wild. Because now as well, you see, like, I feel like for us, our generation, we sort of lived through that transition. Like we had MSN after school, like in <laughs> primary school. And then like, I remember, you know, I got my first phone when I was 13. It was like a big deal. Like I'd really been waiting for that one to happen. But it was a phone, you know, like it yeah. wasn't an everything. It was just like used for texts and phone calls. And now, obviously, when you see kids growing up, like babies have phones and iPads and um, it's kind of, I don't know what your view is or like what you sort of foresee from that. But I definitely wonder what does that mean for a generation that has fully, that's all they've ever known growing up? Like how much harder is it to wean yourself off it yeah it's super interesting i mean i think the, the the key thing is that it's it's literally rewriting our brains you know and if if you've got someone who's using it from you know like neuroplasticity is is real of course and so you have someone who's using a phone from from three years old like that fundamentally just changes the way your your brain develops um and i think i guess to play the devil's advocate there's pros and cons with everything, right? So, you know, obviously these kids are going to grow up and they're, they're going to be much more digital native. Um, and so it is just a different, very much like the transition to the written word. Uh, like, you know, people didn't have the oral abilities and the memory abilities that they had before, but there are different things, right? Like you kind of develop the depth of knowledge. So there are, of course, going to be um, benefits. And I think this this whole kind of, you know, Elon Musk already talks about us being cyborgs with our phones, the connection's just bad. And, you know, he's building a company where you're going to have a, a chip in your brain. And, and so it almost removes the need for the the screen completely. So maybe that's the world we're moving towards. So I think, you know, tech is going to become more and more integrated. But certainly for the next few decades, we have uh, this situation where, you know, whatever the current solution is, it's causing skyrocketing issues with, you know, anxiety, depression, like we're still living in a world um, that's not designed fully around phones and around being completely digital. Um, but yet people are completely sucked into it, meaning that, you know, we struggle to, we struggle to interact with um, the other parts of our lives. And this is especially true of kids who have had it all the way through their teenage years. Like I think if anything, um, COVID has been a bit of a smokescreen because you had a generation who came into their 
early 20s during COVID and skyrocketing issues with you know depression, anxiety. And that was very much chalked off to it was the pandemic. But this was happening pre-pandemic, you know, and it was it was a generation that had screens all the way through their teenage years and social media specifically. Um, and, you know, it, it has caused unbelievably widespread mental health issues. So I don't know what that looks like in 100 years, but certainly for the next 10, 20 years, like we are just going to see, you know, people growing up less resilient um you know more prone to anxiety and uh, i think that's i think that's sad um but I, i'm not sure i'm not sure how that develops but i hopefully with some of the work we're doing we start to move that more in a positive direction because you know if you can get people offline like we again we all have the capacity uh kind of to be happy to to you know, have control of ourselves and it's about stripping away what's there. So yeah, I'm optimistic with, with these things and I, I'm sure as a species we'll, we'll figure it out, but we're definitely in a, a painful transit transition period for, for a while. But also it sounds like quite a polarizing transition period because on the one hand, you're talking about doing work to help people strip this away. On the other hand, we've got Elon Musk planning to <laughs> inject it into us. Like, how does unplugged work in a society where it's the technology is inside of us? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I guess, you know, once you start to get into that, you start to get into like, what is it about the technology that's causing issues? And there might be a world where, you know, that brain implant actually because you know for example an, an easy an easy um a, an easy thing to, to look at is is instagram and you've got you know teenage girls especially who see all these people who have beautiful lives and are always going on expensive holidays just you know so hard to um and their lives feel or all of our lives feel feel so poor in comparison to all the examples of success we see on on social media um, now, you know, maybe there's a world where you've got brain chips and, and, and actually you don't see so much of that and it's less of this kind of newsfeed culture and maybe it is healthier. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, technology as a whole that's, that's causing mental health issues. It's, it's, it's features within that. And I also think as a society, we can figure out what those are and, and, and move towards a healthier solution because I think what is happening slowly and, you know, what hopefully Unplugged can help accelerate is the conversation about this, you know, and people are like the key is awareness. If we can, like everyone kind of knows that it's an issue, but not, not really, you know, and if we can start talking about this more uh, and actually just figuring out what's going on really unpicking it because it's such a complex issue, then yeah, I, I, uh, a big believer in human ingenuity. So I'm sure as a society, we'll, we'll figure it out. So awareness is the key to so much, but it's also something that not everyone wants. Like you said, it's like something that if anything, some people really don't want. So what is the road to even attaining that? Yeah, well, for sure. I think that's why the word we used earlier, normalizing is important, right? Because again, now that it's still quite fringe, a lot of people are, you know, I'm not the kind of person who could do this, like blah, blah, blah. But as soon as you start to see, you know, your friends doing it, your family members doing it, and the the research builds, the kind of conversation around this builds, then people change over time. 
Um, and so I think it's a societal problem rather than individual problem. Like people are always going to have, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's been through their own shit and, you know, everyone's wired differently. So people, as you say, have to come to it themselves. But I think on the macro level, if you can bring about the societal change, uh, then that will, you know, help a lot of people get there. And, you know, as, as one person gets there, it becomes more normalized and spreads to a, a wider audience. So yeah, I, I do think it, it happens organically over time, but it does need, you know, people pushing and you know, that's what we're trying to do unplugged. And, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure other work going on and, and other people, you know, looking at this and, and, and starting to do something about it. So I think we're on the right side of history. I think it's super early in a, a space that's only going to become more and more central to the conversation in the the next decade so yeah I'm excited to see where it goes so with um unplugged have you had any kind of funny customer stories or customer (laughs) stories that sort of relate to that awareness that you're trying to spread yeah that's a good question um I'm not sure about funny ones we always get it's really interesting to hear probably the most surprising is um just the amount, especially couples who say like, it's actually just the first time we sat and like talked, you know, which is crazy. But if you think about it, for anyone who's been together for less than 10 years, like you probably haven't spent a day together without your phones, you know, for, for probably the majority of couples, obviously some will have. Um, and I think that was just, just super interesting to see. So we, there's some very wholesome stories, like people going home and, you know, buying a map of their neighborhood afterwards and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, couples going and setting out a night a week where they'll go to a restaurant and leave their phones at home. So yeah, it's just been really great to see the, um, just how it's kind of trickled down into to people's daily lives. And, you know, we, we, we've got some very passionate supporters. So that's been a, a real joy. And what's your ambition within workplaces? Because I've seen popping up on LinkedIn and stuff, like you've done this partnership with Lottie. Um, how's that going in terms of getting this concept into workplaces and getting workplaces around the idea of actually digital detox isn't just good for people's personal lives. Actually, it can be a benefit um, for them as as a person that works at your company? Yes, so that one's happened um, really organically. So we always thought there might be some, you know, something interesting with companies. We weren't quite sure what it was. And then we had uh, two or three get in touch in the spring and just ask if they could offer it as a employee benefit. So each of their employees gets one digital detox per year. Um, And then it's really just kind of grown from there. So I think we have 16 companies on board now offering it to all of their employees as a, you know, annual annual benefit um and that's that's really exciting to see because again the in terms of you know reach of of, of the message like to actually have companies getting behind this and saying hey look, we really like this is this is the message we want to send to our employees because i think you know every company talks about how they want balance and all of these things but much fewer actually do something about it and so yeah it's been really great to see it used that way um, and, and companies actually saying, hey, we do take this seriously and, you know, we're actually going to give you three days offline where you, you know, you can't get in touch with us. So, so that's great to see. I mean, we, uh, I think probably a year and a half ago when our first employee, um, Tom, who's fantastic, went on his first holiday, 
uh, the day he went on holiday, he a couple of hours after the day started, he sent us screenshots of like two emails that had come in about like fires, you know, issues that had, had happened. And it was just such a like moment of like, oh my God, like everything that we preach about and, you know, one of our team, the first thing that happens on holidays, you get bombarded by emails and you just realize that you know, people are taking holidays, but it's still so, it's so hard to get away from these things, right? Um, and, you know, the the other thing we sometimes hear is that, oh, why can't I just go to a hotel and put my phone in a drawer? And it's like, you can, but, you know, 99% of people don't. Um, and so it's really about enabling people to take this time off. And so much of that is, you know, the company actually sending the message of, hey, we really, I don't need that thing from you on Friday. Like, really take this time off. Really. Yeah, and it's so encouraging to hear that that's been something that's kind of happened quite organically as well, rather than having to persuade people of why it's a good idea. But on that note of like, well, you can try and go to a hotel and put it in a drawer, but you're not going to stick to it. If I'm going to an unplugged cabin (laughs) and I'm logging away my phone, how does it work? Like, could I technically be like, oh, I'll just... uh, (laughs) Yeah, so so it's all it's all self policed. So you get there, you've got a lockbox with a padlock. And you've got the key in a sealed envelope, so it's enough friction that you're not opening it on night one, but it, it's there in case of emergency. So you close the padlock yourself, lock your phone away. Um, but what we found is it's it's almost a behavioural psychology problem because it's won or lost before people even get there. So when we launched, we didn't do too much around this. And people just saw a cabin on Instagram. They came to come and stay. And we were checking people in ourselves back then. And we tried to take their phone off them. And they were like, no way. What are you doing? Um, so we realized that it's won or lost before they even get there. You know, As long as people are excited, that's what they're coming to do. They've told their friends. They've told their family um, that it's much easier once they're there to, to actually do it. And it's about kind of removing the excuses. So, you know, we've got a Nokia in there, we've got a Polaroid camera, uh, we've got a map. So all these reasons that people might have for, you know, it's, oh, I can just check my phone. Like if you can kind of remove all of that, then it really, you know, empowers people to, to actually spend the three nights offline. And has that been a gradual process of basically seeing the types of objections people have like, but I want to take photos. You're like Polaroid camera. And it's like slowly <laughs> been these like, tools that you've added into your kit along the way yeah definitely it happened quite fast so the at the start um you know myself and my co-founder were, were checking everyone in he would do the check and i do the checkout and, and vice versa um and so we, we were getting feedback very quickly at the start and so you know you, you, luckily there's only kind of four or five things so you can tick it off pretty quickly but uh but yeah it's as as you say like once once you've got those things out the way then you know people really and i think the key is to to get people excited about it as well um and then you know as again as the brand uh, grows and as you know why we're doing it and and kind of the message um gets out there then th- that all helps as well and you know if people have heard a lot of our kind of um you know a lot of our customers come through word of mouth etc and again, that's just a very positive because someone's told them about how they locked their phone away and they've had a great time. So it's a, it, there's a nice kind of reinforcing loop. It's kind of proving that concept you mentioned about the ripple effect. And when I have my mum here and we're talking about her teaching meditation and a lot of people were like, no way do I want to learn that. <laughs> and then slowly what ended up happening was 
people were noticing the benefits that others were getting and then slowly started being like oh can I come along too and um it sounds like that's also something that's happening for you with Unplugged. Yeah, and I think it goes far beyond just people coming to stay with us. Like, it doesn't really, you know, matter too much if they, if they come and stay. Like, even just by existing, what we found is that it's thought-provoking in conversations. So people will say, oh, have you heard about this startup that's doing X, Y, Z? And it gets people thinking about, well, what's my relationship like with, with my mm-hmm. phone? Um, and so we, we have so many people who you know, want to come stay, haven't come to stay yet, but they've implemented some changes. You know, they now take a half an hour walk and leave their phone at home or whatever it is. And I think that's what's really great to see is, as you say, there's a ripple effect far beyond just the people who 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 come as customers and or as guests. And, you know, the 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 more we can again, the more we can just keep just just keep pushing the same message, uh, then it always surprised by how long these things take but it's amazing you know as the business grows to just start to see start to see changes happening and 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 the kind of growing momentum so yeah that's been a a real joy that's great okay well I'm gonna ask you a few questions that we ask every guest that comes on so the first is from your perspective what makes a toxic workplace culture I think no psychological safety is a big one for me. It's like when people, you know, don't feel safe to fail. And I think when when you get there, then, you know, people go from being collaborators to competitors um, and it just creates this culture of fear. So, so yeah, f- for me, kind of establishing psychological safety is a, is a big one. It just removes all the, the politics, et cetera. And how do you, for example, internally at Unplugged, how do you try and lead on that? What do you do to try and establish a sense of psychological safety with your team? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the key is just like when people do get stuff wrong, it's, you know, just that's that's fine. I think just 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 kind of really accepting and supporting that, like just always being there to support rather than being there to like criticize and like, why did this go wrong, et cetera. It's like, you know, something went wrong, cool. What did we learn? What's next? Like, what, what's the kind of best path forward here? And I think that, you know, like how you act in those situations is what creates culture. You know, you can have the, you can have the best like, you know, values up on the wall, but then if you're going to be a, a, a dick when someone makes a mistake or if you're like looking for someone to blame. Um, so another thing that I personally find works really well it's just my default is i will take i will assume everything is my fault you know so if anything goes wrong it's not an ego thing it's not like oh i'm so important so everything's to do with me it's like something went wrong like rather than be like oh that person got that wrong i'm like oh yeah i could have told them a bit more about this etc so it just means you you come to the conversation of a place of like yeah sorry look i i kind of I fucked up too here. Um, and then you're on the same team to try and solve it. And I think that's it. It's about creating a culture where people are collaborating rather than, you know, figuring out who's to blame. I love that because what you've also just described there, um, not that you should be putting blame on yourself or saying everything's <laughs> your fault, but more just thinking about yourselves as a system, like yeah. as a whole, rather than that person there and I'm here thinking about, the collective responsibility of there's the situation and then there's us together as a unit and 
what might have led to that situation between us as a unit. Yeah. Um, a really good, if I can dive in there, yeah. a really good um, metaphor for that is just thinking of the company as an organism and, you know, like how it's kind of looking at like how healthy is, is that organism? Like, you know, and, and it's the sum of its parts. And, you know, if someone's unhappy or if someone's arguing about something, then like that, that is an issue. That's like an illness within the company. It's just going in and like going in again with compassion. And it's like, okay, how do we like solve this? Like this person is frustrated about something. Like how can we kind of get them to a place of peace so they can go and do their jobs? I, I think about my role, um, very much as like a supportive role, like it's such a cliche, the kind of, um, you know, reverse pyramid, but I, I, that really is it. Like, you know, we have a lot of great people who I trust completely and it's really just about like, how can I not get in their way and like help them do their job as, as best as possible. And I think having that mindset is helpful. It help, helps me certainly the different styles. Some people are more hands-on and I'm not that kind of leader, I think. It's so true what you said. There was actually um, a Nobel Prize winner that proved how we impact each other on a cellular level. So if you're stressed and I'm around you, like my body will start to attack itself as though it's stressed. So it's like that responsibility we have to each other and to ourselves to also look after ourselves, but look after each other because without that, it does affect it will affect all of you that's there. You kind of started to touch upon <laughs> this, but what makes a great workplace culture? Uh, yeah, the flip side of, um, of the other one, which I think is 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 that kind of, just just no, I'll, I'll do something slightly different, no ego, you know, like intellectual humility. I think that's it. It's like where the question is just about like, okay, how do we solve? Like what's the challenge and how do we solve it? Rather than like, um, you know, people kind of positioning for credit or, or any of these things. And I think if you can create a psychologically safe culture where everyone's happy to fail and it's just about, you know, it's about kind of what is, you know, right and like how do we how do we kind of get better? How do we improve? And if the focus is on that, and again, it's it, it's it's all about um there's a great book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Cass. Mm. Uh and you only need to read the first 45 pages or so but basically a finite game is a game where you know you have a set of rules and there's a beginning and end and there's winners and losers and everyone's competing whereas an infinite game is a game where everyone's collaborating there's no end you're playing to play Uh, and i think it's kind of viewing a company like that almost is in my view where it's less this kind of you know everyone's graded and you know you kind of win lose and you know this person lost etc but it's more about we're just playing to play and, you know, we're playing to get better at each time. And I know, you know, certain companies have goals and objectives, et cetera. But in my experience, I was running, you know, various functions at my old startup. Whenever I've forecasted set targets, we've always missed it by a mile. So I'm starting to think actually maybe that's not the way to go. And it's just focus more on playing to play um, because I think it's, you know, it's when there are very like hard goals and hard deadlines, which of course there are, you know, in life and obviously startups are incredibly hard and there are objectives to hit. Like that can often create toxic cultures um, when, when miss, you know, when managed in a certain way. Um, and so I think just, 
just kind of going with the flow more. There's a good uh, idea from improv, which is like, yes, and, you know, it's like whatever happens, it's like, yes, and, you know, it's like if something happens, just be like, okay, yes, and what's next, you know? Just kind of surrender and, and, and go with the flow of, of the situation where look, we, we, we can try and do something by a certain time, but if it doesn't, let's not go on a witch hunt and find out whose fault it was. Let's be like, okay, where do we go now? Like what's next? You know? So I, I think, I think it's, it's about, yeah, cultivating that and just cultivating like a, a kind of, you know, desire to play rather than, yeah, rather than desire to compete. Yeah. And that for me sort of also describes moving away from quite linear thinking, like oversimplistic yeah. thinking to something that's far more dynamic and actually gives the space to do what's optimal for the here and now, because that bit is always going to be changing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think so much, as soon as you slap, um, you know, a bunch of targets, et cetera, uh, especially when it comes to the top and, you know, people don't really... Uh, know the why behind it then as the the situation is kind of ever changing on on the ground and the people who are actually you know doing the work then the two can get so out of match and it's like everyone knows like why are we aiming for this target kind of thing but no one really says it and that's when like resentment builds and, and people are like well you know the bosses have told us that we need to do this but like what they're talking about is ridiculous. Like, why are we launching another product now? This is a terrible idea. And so often, you know, it's those people who are close to the action who have a much better sense of, of what we should and shouldn't do. And I think, you know, at the top, it can become a bit of an echo chamber when people are like, okay, I need to do this for this investor, you know, rather than like, as you say, getting into like actually understanding the situation um, and, and kind of, you know, going, going forward based on that information. Great. Okay, so the final question, um, which again, you've spoken about Unplugged, your mission, what you're trying to achieve in the world, the message you're trying to spread. And this is to ask you, what is the ultimate tip you could offer for anyone listening to create cultural change for the better? Uh, I think, you know, the old, the old, Gandhi phrase, be the change you want to see in the world. It's, it's so true. Um, you know, like kind of lead by doing because, you know, fundamentally words are, are cheap and it's actually actions that are really going to make a difference. So, you know, if you want to create a culture with more trust in, start trusting your people, you know, <laughs> and start like talking to them and like actually getting on the same page as, as them. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for coming along and it's been a pleasure chatting to you. For sure. Well, thank you for having me and such a joy to see you and be part of this. So yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>